April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. While I have you here, I'm excited to tell you that it is that time again. Once a year, we open the doors to a special value-packed deal that is almost too good to believe. This is our best year yet. I'll wait for you here if you want to quickly hop on over to anchoredoutdoors.com. You can do it on your desktop or your mobile. And then put your name down on our first to find out list. Simply look for the pop-up that's going to come up and then enter your email. You will hear from me personally in three weeks about what is going on. Again, that's www.anchoredoutdoors.com. Look for the pop-up, enter your info, and I will see you soon. While you're doing that, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what's in this episode. Champion cyclist Emily Rogers' ascent to the podium was twice derailed by near-fatal collisions. Her journey to overcome injury and PTSD led her back to the pastime of her childhood and her love for fly fishing. In this episode of Anchored, she tells her story and shares how she discovered not only her own peace, but also a path for others facing a personal crisis and unexpected life change. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by South Dakota and their incredible hunting opportunities. In South Dakota, hunting is a shared legacy, something everyone can be a part of. That's why they're focused on making their fields a welcome place for everyone. See how at www.huntthegreatestsd.com where you can hear stories from sportswomen and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. While you're there, check out public land maps, hunting blogs, and seasonal information for one unforgettable fall. See how at huntthegreatestsd.com. I was born in Ontario and raised in New Brunswick, so East Coast, Canada. Okay, so you are a Canadian girl through and through. I am a Maritimer through and through, yes. Did you ever live in the States? I did, yeah. I lived um, in Arizona part-time for seven years while I was training and racing as a cyclist. So just kind of off topic, did you end up getting a visa? Did you have to go through the whole visa process? No, I had to count my days to make sure <laughs> that I got home in time to remain legal in all aspects of my travels. Yeah, no, there like I would have in those years I would have loved to have been in Arizona and down in the states longer than I was. Um I looked into different ways at times of getting the visa um and yeah, never, it never kind of fully ended up happening. But no, I would have to say no to a lot of trips to some races, things like that, because my days were so precious. Yep, I totally understand. Okay, so Canadian girl through and through. And then I'm, I feel like I'm cheating because I did watch your video cadence, which I absolutely mm-hmm. love. And, and so because of that, like, I feel like I know all of this about you. <laughs> Um, and I probably shouldn't. Usually I do this really organically and we pick through your timeline. Um, but I've, I've had this amazing look into your life and I want to talk about it, even though it's really personal, if that's okay. Yeah, that is okay. Okay. So biking. Um, I know in the video you mentioned that you were kind of losing yourself or you really weren't sure who you were as a person when you started biking. And again, because I feel like I'm cheating here. Can you explain to the listener how you got into biking and why you got into bike or into cycling? Yeah. And, and so a friend of mine gifted me a road bike at the age of 27. 27. And that is literally how I started riding. 
Um, like I had a bike as a young girl that I shared with my sisters and that was the extent of it. I did not really grow up playing sports, um, or really have the opportunity to pursue much like that. And I had been teaching fitness classes basically as a way to get through university to pay my bills, to pay for rent. And so I had this base level of fitness and, a friend of mine, yeah, gifted me a road bike that someone had gifted him. And I just got on that thing and started riding. And that is how that whole sport started for me. I can't believe you're a 27 because, I mean, you took it to a competitive level, which of course we'll, we'll cover here, but you went really far with that. That's, I mean, just to be brutally honest, isn't 27 kind of old? <laughs> I'm yeah. weird saying that, but... <laughs> It is, right? No, it is. It, it, it is. I was like, yeah, for that sport, kind of the anomaly as to, you know, especially when I got to racing at the professional level of a lot of these girls grew up um, cycling or their parents were cycling or they came from another sport. They came from speed skating or something else that then transitioned into cycling. Um, so, no, I think it is pretty rare to start a sport at a later age in life and get to the professional level within a few years. It just speaks volumes about your personality and your tenacity. So this is, this is great. Now I know leading up to your bike, you weren't necessarily the happiest that you've been. So I just personally, I'm very curious about that because I always find the late twenties an interesting age. Obviously you go into 30 and you kind of feel like, all right, I made it. I'm a I'm a woman. I'm a real woman now. Uh, what, mm-hmm. what was going on in your life in those, you know, the later part of your 20s before the bike? Yeah, I think, and, you know, so much of that would have stemmed from childhood and adolescent years of really trying to, really struggling to feel like I ever fit in and really struggling with self confidence, with self esteem, with feeling like I was good enough or smart enough. Um, and yeah, a lot of, insecurities and then graduating high school and thinking, okay, I just want to, I just need to become something in life. I just need to be successful and not even really knowing what that was, but then going to university, becoming a dental hygienist. And then my goal being, okay, now I need to buy a house. Now I need to do this. Now I need to start traveling. And all of these things that I kept thinking, if I just have this, then I will be something. And that being was being successful, being happy, but coming up empty handed with all of those things. Um, And then I think that when I got the bike, the bike was one of those first things where I really felt like, gosh, I'm actually good at this. Like I, like it was like this strength and confidence came out in me that I didn't even know was there. So then obviously you get on the bike, you're this whole new woman, you're free, you've got the wind in your face. You haven't started fly fishing at this point yet, right? Does that come after nope. the accident? It does. Okay. Yeah. Let's, I, I know it's painful to talk about, but let's just fly through it. So the accident. Yeah. And just as a, as I just want to preface this with letting you know, I had a bad car accident in 2008. And so in watching your video today, I was getting my own flashbacks and it is, it's very emotional to go back and, and recall the slow motion and the conversations with, you know, whoever it is, whether it's your inner self or God, I know you'd mentioned God. I I don't want to pick your brain and go too far down that hole because I don't want to make it hard for you, but can you just tell us the, well, what happened? 
what happened that, yeah, that day? Yeah, and, and, and I can go anywhere you want to go with it. Okay. Is, um, yeah, so a year after I started riding, I was down in Arizona. I had competed in my first ever bike race, um, did extremely well at it, thought, okay, this is something that I'm going to pursue. And a few days later, I was out for a ride, and a 83-year-old woman ran a stop sign and T-boned me on my bike. And so I was airlifted to trauma hospital with brain injury, with multiple broken bones, broken bones in my face, lost my top teeth. Um, Yeah, and then had a very long road to recovery from that. You kept really picking at my heart when you kept saying the word ignore. I don't Mm -hmm. don't know if this happened to you. I know when I was in the hospital, they, they sent in like a psychologist, I guess it was. I was still kind of out of it, but they were saying that I needed to at some point talk about it and I needed to acknowledge what had happened. And I was like, I'm fine. I'm just happy to be alive. I'm going to never let a single day go by again and waste it. That's the promise I made when this happened, which actually puts an insane, as you know, amount of pressure on you to make the best of your life because you promise that if you survive this ordeal, that you will not waste another second of your life. And ignoring is exactly what I did something similar, but with fly fishing, but you cannot run from it. So what, what happened with you when you were trying to run and, you know, quote unquote, ignore this, this trauma, what ended up happening to you um, mentally? Have you wrapped your head around that yet at this point? Yeah. Yep. I have. And it, I mean, you hit it spot on. It's that like, when you live through something that you should not have lived through, that it is you do not take any single thing from then on out for granted. And it's almost like you feel like you've cheated death. You've been given this other chance. I lost a good friend to a cycling accident. She got hit by a car. She did not survive. And I, I remember these feelings of like, why me? Like, why was my life so precious to be spared? And, um, yeah, so just wanting to do everything to make the most of it all the time and putting this insane amount of pressure on myself to just to be this happy person that was just so grateful to live. Yet living with a brain injury, living with PTSD, living with all of these physical injuries, mental injuries, like, and um, yeah, for me, I used the bike as a tool to try and ignore everything that I was going through, um, to try and show other people that I was doing well, but I think mostly to try and convince myself that I was doing well. And it got to a point where I felt so lost. I felt so confused. I felt like I was lying to everyone and myself by trying to portray myself as this strong champion cyclist. When inside I felt so weak, so broken, so lost, so confused, so lonely. Um, that yeah, it got to the point that one day I was driving home from a race. I had just won Canadian masters nationals and I was just like, I can't do this anymore. And calling my mom, my mom is a therapist. And like, I grew up in therapy. It's like therapy to me is normal. It is as normal to talk about your feelings as it is to talk about the weather. Yet with that, I could not go there. And yeah, in that moment of knowing that like, I need professional help, even though like I had received some, uh, like therapy along the way. But for me, I kept it at a very superficial level. Um, and just, yeah, trying to convince myself that I was okay. Cause 
what's the word okay even mean? It's like, what is that relative to? Um, yeah, but then really making a conscious choice in that moment that like as much time as I spend on my physical training, I need to spend on my mental health as well. Enter fly fishing. So tell me how that all started. Yeah. So fly, it's like my earliest memories of, of fishing are when I was a little girl and when I was going through hard times as a little girl and being by the brook was a safe place for me. And it was a place where I could just, I was just so captivated. I was just so like mesmerized by these little tiny brook trout. And um, so on my recovery days in Arizona, I would go up to Sedona and I would just kind of sit by the creek there. And it just brought me peace. I think mostly because at that time I was away from traffic. I was away from noise. I was away from all the things that were triggering PTSD. And um, yeah, I just kind of started noticing these little brown trout and became so intrigued by them and would just kind of lose myself for hours on end just staring at these fish and prior to that it's like I cannot remember a time in a very long time where I was not super focused on a result on bettering myself on trying to prove myself and um, that's kind of how the idea of fishing came to me and so I yeah, I looked up a looked up a guide and um, went out a few days later and got some lessons. And then it just became something that I did on my own. So I obviously know with fishing that there's meditation and how you cast and watching the fish and listening to the water. How does the meditation vary or differ between cycling and fly fishing? Yeah, and um, I think on some levels it can be similar. And on some levels, it can be similar, but in the opposite way. And what I mean by that is that like, take, you know, permit fishing, for example, of it is like, I get in that Emily competitive mode. (laughs) (laughs) And when people are like, it's therapeutic, I'm like, have you permit fished before? At least in my experience, there was nothing therapeutic about that. Like, it's like that silence is, for eight hours and then chaos. Just yeah, madness. That is like world championship racing right there. <laughs> um, but this also, it's like, it's kind of that, that like flow state that just like kind of white space that you can get into that I can get into when I am training, um, whether it is on the bike, whether it is running, where I really am just so focused on everything in the given moment, like just so present and very much get in that place when I'm fishing, especially when I'm fishing by myself, which is why for those first few years, I really only fished by myself. It's a different dynamic when you have somebody with you. You know, you feel, I mean, depending on who it is, but at the end of the day, the strength that you find within yourself when you're alone, it's, um, yeah, it's special. So out of curiosity, then when you're cycling, is there any sort of meditative trance that you go into? Like, I just, it all seems very stressful to me, (laughs) even, (laughs) even cycling just for fun. I would just be, maybe I'm just not very good on a bike, but can you get into a trance or you always, you can. No. Yeah. And, and so it depends after my second accident, which we're going to get to by a car. <laughs> God, <laughs> yeah. Emily. Um, so no, there were many, 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 many days, weeks, months, years where cycling was this trance that I would get into. And I loved that space. It's like, that is the space that I become like addicted to. 
Um, and it's like the longer I get into it, the deeper that becomes and the more that I love it. And I feel the same with that in fly fishing. It's that like that fourth day on the water of nonstop casting for Atlantic salmon in the wind, in the snow, in the everything that is in those days that I'm like, this is what I love. And it's just like that grit takes over, that strength takes over. Okay, so you dive all into competitive racing. I mean, it you went hard. Can you let us know what you did in that time leading up to your second accident, which I cannot believe I'm even saying? Yeah. So in the like in the first year alone after um racing, I was like medically cleared to get back on a bike four months after the accident and in hindsight got back out on it way too soon. Um, but I, yeah, I, I consumed myself with racing and then that first year I raced 21 races. I podium 17 and I won 14 of them. And, um, it was like any race that I could do, whether it was cycling, whether it was triathlon, um, half Ironman distance, like I just, I did it all. I did not have a swim background. I did not have a run background. Um, and you know, in hindsight and something that I just recently kind of realized is that like the, that level of strength that you tap into, and maybe you can kind of relate to this and having had a, like a really bad accident as well is that like, when you're in this position where you're fighting for your life, where you're tapping into the strength, is that like, you know, how strong you are, you know, what you are capable of doing. And then it was almost like, I felt like I needed to stay in that level of strength at all times. Oh, interesting. Yep. And, um, and yeah, so I, I, I kept racing and after two years, racing or two and a half years racing. I was racing at the professional level and traveling all over the world racing. And then four years later, um, I was in France. I had just won my second world championship title, was racing my final stage race of the season. Um, I was racing for a British team and a vehicle got onto the closed race course. And as I was descending down, um, yeah, the thing that I feared the most in life happened again, and I was hit and um, spent eight days in hospital in France. And uh, yeah, this see, I didn't know that it was a close. I mean, looking back now, of course, it was going to be closed. And then it also wasn't clear in the video if you had hit your brakes and launched or if the vehicle hit you. But oh, wow, wow, wow. Mm-hmm. wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's something that, um, you know, I was not sure. And I've had so many realizations since that video came out and, um, we are putting out uh, CBC television is putting out a one hour version of the documentary that goes more into my brain injury. It speaks, it speaks to more things that to be honest, a year ago, I wasn't even in a place that I was comfortable in speaking with. And one of those things even was that accident and what happened and um, how I still felt that um, I should not speak about what actually happened because of the repercussions of speaking out on things that happen in professional sport and how things are handled. And um, so, yeah, it was by choice that I did not go into much detail on that accident. I, I felt I felt you fly through it, um, and I just I didn't know if it was uh, I didn't know I didn't know 
why maybe they were running short in time on the documentary, but that all makes sense. Um, were there any repercussions for the organizers of the race? Because that's, no. that fell on them, didn't it? In hindsight, no. <laughs> no. 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 Why, why did you have to lay in the ditch for an hour and a half waiting for help? That really bothered me to hear that. Yeah. And that really bothers, <laughs> bothers me. It, um, I, I don't know the answers to that. Um, I don't know if they were trying to cover up what had happened. Um, I know that I read a newspaper article uh, that was published in a French newspaper when I was, I, I later found out about it after I was in the hospital, the, um, that it was the police who had eventually um, found me. And they wrote this article in the newspaper saying, why was the cyclist who was clearly in a race laying in a ditch by herself? Where were the or race organizers, everything else? And uh, the race organizers came out and said, this isn't true. That did not happen. Basically that the police were making it up and um, people love cycling. People love the sport. People love sport and certain things get covered up. Um, what did the driver do? Were they there? Did they stay with yeah. you? Yeah. Yep. Okay. No. Uh, so the lady, cause I did not go unconscious immediately and the lady did stop. And I remember seeing just like shock on her face. Um, and then at one moment I, uh, remember the, the race organ, one of the, one of the race like officiators who was on a motorbike, um, who was there at the accident kind of motioned for her to like to go off. And I remember just screaming saying like, but she hit me. Um, and then, yeah, shortly after that, I went unconscious and, and woke up and was by myself. What a disaster. So you're eight days in the hospital in France. Mm -hmm. Your mom must have just been beside herself. Yeah. And it, um, yeah, I think my entire family, I think that like even the, the cycling community back home in North America, um, yeah, yeah, it was a really awful situation. It's like, I don't speak French and I'm in a tiny hospital, tiny hospital in France, uh, where the nurses, the doctors don't speak English. It's like, you don't even really know what your injuries are, how you're going to get home. Um, all of that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, eventually a friend of mine had to fly over um, in order to even help me get out of the hospital and uh, fly back to Canada for treatment. So yeah. Yeah. And, and four months after that, I, I went back to racing. Thank you again to South Dakota. For more than 100 years, pheasant hunting has been a storied South Dakota tradition. Now, for the next century, South Dakota is focused on expanding pheasant hunting's horizons, welcoming more sportswomen to the field, giving them a greater voice in the hunting community. That's a legacy to stand the test of time. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. 
Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Um, okay, so you go back to racing. I don't know whether I want to hug you right now or <laughs> Smack you because it's yeah. That would be a similar response to my sisters <laughs> and most people. I'm assuming you started fly fishing more at this point. Yeah, I so prior to that, I had been fly fishing a lot, and even when I was in the hospital in France, and it was August, and that was my last race of the season, and then my plan was go home, and it was fall fishing for salmon and now my you know left my right shoulder my right collarbone broken like not only can I not bike but I can't fish and just feeling like so many things had been taken away from me um but also feeling like I had invested so much into cycling I had made so many sacrifices for cycling that I didn't want to just quit and um and feeling like how rare it is for someone to have the opportunity to race at the level that I was racing at that, um, yeah, I almost felt like I couldn't not do it. Yeah, I, I get it. I get it. So what happens from there? So I, I, yeah, I go back, um, four months after and start training, um, and, uh, start racing two months after that and go back to my kind of regular scheduled seasons of races that I had commit to and, and traveled from Arizona to California to Arkansas, and then was racing in New Mexico and just was racing back to back to back to back, um, which is what I would do in those months. And yeah, something really shifted in a, in a race in New Mexico for me where I just was like, what am I doing? Like, really, what am I doing? And I had started to really ask myself those questions while in the hospital in France. Um, but just being in a place where you're so physically and mentally exhausted that it's like you don't even have the energy to lie to yourself anymore. And in that moment, just knowing that I need to take a step back. And I thought that it would just be a short step back for a couple of weeks for maybe a month and then I would get right back to it um but knowing in that moment it's like I crossed that finish line of that final stage of that final race knowing that okay I need a little break from this and that felt healthy and that felt like a good choice even though you thought it was temporary which it sounds like it wasn't uh right (laughs) what what were you going to do with yourself because obviously you need to stay busy you're not just going to eat chips on the couch yeah I was going to fish yeah. And, you did and that. um and I did that. 
Yeah. And my, uh, and my dad, he was going through cancer at the time. And there were just a lot of reasons why I wanted to be home, why I wanted to be with my family, with my friends. And so, yeah, I spent that summer just close to home and then just fishing as much as I possibly could. And I thought that in the fall that I would go and I would <clears throat> race worlds again. And uh, so I kept training all throughout that summer. I just wasn't racing. And then it got to be, I think, six weeks before worlds. And I decided that a fishing trip sounded more <laughs> fulfilling than racing again. And it like I got to a point where um, yeah, that excitement of, of doing well, of winning, of crossing a finish line just did not leave me excited. It did not, it just, um, yeah. And, and I really felt like too, that if I went and raced, it was almost like I was feeling guilty, but I was taking an opportunity from somebody else who would really want a position to be able to be on that start line when I didn't really care anymore that it was me. Yeah. Wow. So where was this fishing trip? Belize. Okay. And obviously you, yep. you went and did you have any sort of eye-opening moments or any life changes? Yeah, I had an eye-opening moment of um, potentially what is going to happen with me in fishing is going to be the same of what has happened with me in cycling. And that is that I choose fishing over friends and family and other things in my life. And is, has that happened? Um. No, I think maybe at certain times, if there's like, <laughs> if there's a really good opportunity for a fishing trip, maybe. Um, but no, it, uh, I think it has just like kind of really made me aware um, as to why I am doing what it is that I am doing and constantly reflecting back on that. Um, and just, yeah, choosing where I put my time and why I'm putting my time in those things. So now, being in the stage that you're in, are is this something that you think is going to consume you? Is this something that you can see as having some extra longevity because you can fly fish till you're 90 if you want? I mean, I guess you could cycle till you're 90 too, but I kind of feel like yeah. fly fishing has got a million opportunities. Yeah. And, and even, I mean, I still ride. I don't compete for cycling. I'm, I'm um, competing in other sport right now. Um, but no, I think that like even even my relationship with cycling has changed and has become healthier that I probably will be riding more this year than I have in the last year, let's say. Um, but I think that cycle, but fly fishing with the way that I am um, doing it and the reasons why I am doing it and the passion that is still there certainly keeps that, um, yeah, that spark alive with it. You said something that really uh, I had actually never thought of before that I thought was quite interesting about Atlantic salmon being the ultimate athlete and how mm. you almost felt this connection with them because they really are these endurance athletes. Can you, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Can you just explain kind of where your thought process is with that? Because I think it's a really beautiful way of looking at it. Yeah. In, in looking at like for the Atlantic salmon, I mean, the miles that they put on each year to travel home to their natal rivers, whether it's like, I mean, I forget the exact number, let's say 5,000 miles. Um, and there's many years that it's 10,000 plus miles that I'm putting on a bicycle or was when I was racing and everything that they have to face from 
climate change, to dams, to fishing, to nets, to, um, I mean, just like everything and anything. And at the end of the day, all that they are trying to do is get home to their natal rivers and um, that they don't give up. They know when to rest. They know when to sit in pools. They know when the water level is too low, when the temperatures are too high. Like they're patient yet they're persistent and they just time things so beautifully. And um, yeah, that was something that I've had a lot of time, especially at my, during my time in France in the hospital that I, that I thought of. And, and, you know, in that way as I do see them as an ultimate endurance athlete. Mm -hmm. It's a, yeah, it's a wonderful way of connecting with them. I thought that was really interesting. So now moving forward, being only 38, what is, what is the plan? Do you have one? Or is there freedom in not having a plan? I, I love the freedom of not having a plan as much as I am, uh, I, that I love to have a plan in certain aspects. There's another part of me that just, it's like, I look back at my life. I look at my cycling career. I look at the last 10 years. I never could have planned for that. It is like being a professional level athlete is not something that ever once crossed my mind between the age of five and 25. It didn't. And I can honestly say that. And if I had to put limitations on myself of what I wanted to really be, that never would have happened. And um, so I think now for going forward, it's like, yeah, like, who knows? Who knows what God has planned for my life? But I know it's going to be exciting. And right now I'm coaching full time. I work as an executive and leadership coach. Um, I am back to training. I'm training for my first ultra marathon. Um, so doing a lot of trail running. And it, that kind of started because, I mean, I, I love sport. I love pushing my body. I love physical fitness. I love that mental fitness. Um and wanting to do something that was just so foreign to my body. And that was trail running. It's a different impact than cycling. It's different. Like just so many differences yet. I can really, uh, can also kind of compare it to fly fishing in just that like technical expertise that goes into it. Um, so yeah, I'm six weeks away from my first ultra marathon. So training a lot for that. And um, I recently moved back to New Brunswick and really focusing on doing more um, just community oriented work and being with family, being with friends, being really intentional about how I spend my time. Do you ever think about going into competitive fly fishing? Yeah, so I actually did uh, two years ago or three years ago, a friend of mine, it was like a week before the Canadian fly fishing championships. They're like, you should do this. I'm like, I didn't even know competitive fly fishing was a thing. Um, so I went and I did it and I had an absolute blast. It was so much fun. Um, but that was it. It was fun for me. And I did well at it. Um, but it... Uh, it, yeah, I didn't. And, and there was talks about like, if I were to get on the team to go to Spain and stuff like that. But um, I didn't want the time commitment of that. And I know myself. And when I say yes to doing something, I'm all in. And I just did not want to make that commitment to it. Yep, understandable. Why do you think so many competitive athletes are drawn to fly fishing? Because as I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm thinking about all my buddies who are pro athletes. And they're almost all of them 
once they've been introduced to fly fishing, it really yeah. sticks with them. Why do you think that is? Is there something about your personalities? I think that it is this like technical expertise that goes into it. And it's that like, and that's because that's one of the things that I love about fly fishing is like stepping back and thinking, how can I do this differently to make this to become better? And being able to be open to see that bigger picture, look at things in a more creative way, um, and then be able to apply it. And I think that fly fishing is like the perfect opportunity to tap into so many of these different components of ourselves, skills of ourselves, characteristics. Um, and that there's also this level of things are also totally out of your control. And that's sport of how, or in life in general, of how many things are out of our control, yet we try and control them so much. So when you're racing, whether it be on foot or on a bike, you, you've got competitors, right? Like clearly you're trying to get in front of the people behind you. What about in, in fly fishing? Is there, is there any, are there, is there a competitor or is it yourself? I mean, is it the fish? Who's the competitor? Yeah. And that is something that I, especially this last year, have become so much more aware of. Um, and I actually had a, a moment of landing a 30 plus pound salmon last year and releasing it and feeling almost sick to my stomach, to be honest, April, about what was that about? Like, why was I so, why did I just spend five days nonstop casting for that moment? And like, was I trying to compete with myself? Was I trying to compete with the fish? Um, and I, yeah, I took months processing that and ultimately being okay with it because I love the journey of it. I loved that entire process of trying to just connect with that fish, um, yeah, sorry, I kind of got off. No, that's all right. Possibly on a. I'm fascinated by this. Was was that feeling of feeling sick or dread? Was it because it was such a short moment and it had happened, or was it because you respect the fish so much? Do you, did you ever tap into why you felt like that? Yeah, I think it was a respect for the fish of a feeling like, um, you know, in comparing salmon to an endurance athlete who are just trying so hard to get home. And I was also one of those things that got in its way. I didn't want to be the one to say it, but it's when I was watching, <laughs> when I was watching your video and I heard you say that about competitive athletes, I kind of thought to myself, oh God, I'm going to get hated for this. Um, I kind of thought to myself, well, geez, we're kind of like the cars that have yeah. hit these guys on their journey. And I didn't know yeah. how you felt about that. Um, I have, I have struggled with that in the past and I've ultimately come to, you know, I've got my own terms and and my own ethics on how I manage that feeling in my own personal life. But with you being with it, feeling that connection and having that relation to the fish and comparing them to yourself, I did wonder if you had any, you know, emotional issues with it. And it sounds like you, yeah. you have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To the point that um, I went on another fishing trip a couple of weeks after that. And then I didn't fish for a couple of months. Yeah. Because I really wanted to think about why am I doing what it is that I am doing. Where are you, where are you at with that now? I love being on the water. I love fishing. It is if I am so fortunate that my fly does intercept a salmon 
then I am, I am okay with that. And I love that. And I love targeting the fish and I love doing it as ethically as I can. And, um, and I think that there is so much education and conservation that comes with anglers and comes with introducing people to it comes with me sharing how it is that I do feel about it. The times that I do struggle with it, um, you know, even right now, it's like, it's, I've never fished for black salmon and it's black salmon fishing right now. That's and the dark Atlantic salmon, right? Yeah. That are returning back to the oceans after they spawn. And, and I look at those fish and I just feel like they look weak and maybe people are going to hate on me for saying this, but it's like, for me, I don't, I don't feel like I would get joy going out and trying to catch them. I feel like they just look so vulnerable, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, I've just for, for me, it's just personal of just wanting to really know why it is that what like, of just doing things with intent. And that's not to say I'll never fish for them, maybe my mind will change on that. But right now, that's kind of where my thoughts have been. I'd be curious to know how you feel about catching very aggressive territorial fish. Have you done any Dorado fishing or gone fishing for any of the, you know, the mean species? I've done, I've done uh, like peacock bass. Um, I haven't done Dorado. Um, As far as the mean species. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I'd be curious to know if you feel the same way. Like I'd love to know how you feel catching a 30 pound Dorado versus catching a 30 pound salmon. And I know that's shallow shallow and it's really irrelevant, but I just would personally be very curious to know how you feel between the two. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it'll happen. Um, (laughs) And I'll let you know. Keep me posted. So you said something that kind of piqued my interest about your head injury. Um, I know that you didn't go into it in depth in the film, but where are you at with that? And it's none of my business and it probably has no place in a fishing podcast, but I'm just very curious about Mm -hmm. where you're at with that now. Yeah, I think so. It's It's been nine years um, since my accident. I actually had surgery um, a couple of weeks ago. Again, um, dental surgery. Um, I've had, yeah, just ongoing surgeries from that. As far as like the brain injury and cognitive stuff, um, I certainly do still have symptoms of that. I feel that I've done a very uh, good job at learning ways of coping with them and knowing what I need to do and knowing when something is too stimulating and I need quiet time and knowing what things trigger migraines, headaches, vertigo, that kind of stuff. Um, but it was it was really uh, it took about like four to five years until I really started to feel like I was making progress and feeling better. Right. So you mean a physical brain injury? This isn't PTSD. This is an actual physical no, brain injury. Physical brain injury. Yeah. God. Was yeah. there not a lawsuit in any of these? Again, none of my business. I can cut. Uh, I, can, I can cut it out. We yeah, can take no, it out. But that's fine, April. I'm fine to go into this stuff. No. So the woman who hit me did not have insurance um, in Arizona, and so that was a really long, traumatizing, drawn out four year court case of me just trying to get my insurance to cover what had happened because I had medical insurance. Um, but it, it, yeah, it was a horrible experience of just trying to only get my medical bills covered, nothing else. And, um, that lawsuit, uh, closed, um, 
not in a very good way. Uh, that accident cost me a lot of money. Um, weeks before my accident happened in France. Oh my God. And so it was such a traumatizing experience that when the accident happened in France, I was like, I don't care how much I am. I I owe for this. I will never go through that legal process again. And I didn't. So the the organizers in the race, they didn't pony anything up. That was all out of pocket on you? Yes. In France? Yep. Yep. Oh, I'm just going to bite my tongue on this one. But I hope you can tell by my face how I feel about it because that's... Yeah. I've done a lot of work, a lot of therapy in not only the trauma of what happened to me, the physical injuries I injured, but how things were handled. Yeah. Does that get covered in the upcoming show, in the hour-long special? No. There's, like, there's so much to cover. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you, I think you need to be the one to make the documentary, then it'll get the real Well, just as somebody who has gone through a lawsuit and a car accident and dealt with the insurance companies and gone to court and testified and cops and, I mean, I, I just... My, it just so you know, my the woman who hit me was um, like three times over the legal limit, and the cops because we did go to court, and the cops testified, but they had taken her blood at three a.m. and didn't get a warrant until seven a.m. And so mm. because of that, they ended up having to throw that part of the case out. Anyway, I just remember how traumatizing all of that was, and I just cannot imagine going through it in a different country twice. I just can't imagine how emotionally exhausting that would have been for you. Yeah, definitely. It's even like, you know, going in for surgery a couple weeks ago and, and this year, I mean, it's like, yeah, I'll have close to $30,000 in medical bills because of that accident. Like just this year, here we are nine years after that first accident. Um, And it is, it's, it's, yeah, it's a never ending thing that like, what else do you do? I would be pressing those organizers so hard. But, um, but yeah, only, you know, the insides of all of that and what you can yeah. cope with. Yeah. Um, so you're back yeah. in New Brunswick now. Mm-hmm. Are you going to stay there? I think so. <laughs> I am really, really, really happy to be home. Um, my family is here. My oldest sister, I have three sisters. My oldest sister, um, Jessica, she has Down syndrome and she's struggling with dementia. And that was one of my main reasons for moving back here in December. And um, yeah, just wanting to be close. And I love New Brunswick. It is like, I just have such a feeling of being home right now of being in a community where people um, just really care for me, really support me in a community that I really want to give back to. And so I know that my life is still going to involve lots of travel and it's going to have me going all over the place, I'm sure. Um, But I also know that this is home base for me. It's such a special spot that when I heard that you were from New Brunswick, I got a really big smile on my face. Because Mm. honestly, if I can think of a spot in Canada or a province in Canada that would really appreciate you, I mean, New Brunswick, honestly, honestly, I'm not just saying this is the first one that comes to mind. And maybe it's because I spend quite a bit of time there and spend time with the community, but it's very, they're very appreciative of people, especially you going back. Like that would mean a lot to them. Yeah, I think even, um, you know, even just recently, I started an organization for for girls age 10 to 14, which that is 
potentially expanding and also expanding to boys or co-ed um, or all genders, I guess, as it's as it's yeah, getting noticed more and more people are hearing about it. But it's an initiative to, you know, provide leadership and confidence through sport and adventure. And it's many different sports. Like right now, we're getting the girls ready for an adventure race of canoeing, of mountain biking, of trail running, also teaching them orienteering and first aid. And just being able to be in a place where I can work with these girls on a weekly basis and see the changes and, um, and just knowing, feeling that like all of the things that I was out pursuing for my own benefit, for my own feeling of trying to get some self-worth, I'm able to now give to others in a hopefully really positive way. What's your organization called and the website if people want to contribute or help out? Yeah, so it is the name of the organization is On the Rise. And so there is a little fly fishing kind of thing in there. Um, and we don't even have a website for it yet. I started it with a gentleman, Rufus Nell, who runs a tennis center here. And um, yeah, we've had such like, uh, like publicity and stuff just by word of mouth that we didn't even do the website stuff yet. So for information, people have just been reaching out to, um, to me personally about it. And uh, yeah, it's certainly an initiative that is, that is growing. And the girls who are going through the program right now, there's 12 of them. Um, they're going through the program knowing that they will be mentoring the next kind of people that come into it. I think that like, yeah, we can all learn so much from each other. And it doesn't matter what the age is. It doesn't matter what the experience is. Um, that when we can learn to all hold each other capable and, and tap into our strengths and learn about our weaknesses and be able to grow from them, that just so much positive can come from it. So can people reach out to you just through Instagram? Do you have a preference? Yeah, Instagram or through my website, emilysroger.com or through LinkedIn, um, through Facebook, I guess through any of the means of social media, they're all out there. I'm excited to watch where you go with this. Yeah, thank you. And I'm excited to see what comes of it, like just for the benefit of others. I think it is so needed. Yeah. Now, when is this? Um, did you say the CB? The CBC documentary. That should be out, I think, by the end of the summer. I know somebody asked me that the other day, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have so many things going on right now that I don't even know. I haven't even asked that question. <laughs> but I think it is towards the end of the summer that it'll be out. Yeah, cool. Will it be up on your social when it's out? It will be, Excellent. Yes. So I'll post all of yeah. those links and get everything up. Um, look, I feel like there's probably a million things that we could talk about. Um, I know we're approaching an hour here. Is there anything in particular that I've missed that you really wanted to cover? No, I, I had, uh, I had no, nothing that wanted to be covered. I was just fully open and exciting to have this opportunity to chat with you. Um, no, I think that, uh, I think that kind of sums up. It's an, you have certain things. You just have such an inspiring story. And I know that there are going to be people that, you know, who can relate to it, but also I just think it's the sort of story that needs to be shared. It's, it's, um, like I said, very inspiring. So thank you for sharing that. 
Yeah. And, you know, with that being said of like keeping my story kind of secret for so long and whether that was out of shame and out of many different reasons and just really know. And even when I was first asked to do the documentary and it was a hard no, like absolutely not. And um, but just really seeing the more that I share it and the more just public speaking engagements that I do and feedback from the film that there is so much relatability that maybe it's not cycling, maybe it's not fly fishing, maybe it's not an accident, but that um, so many of the things that I have experienced in life and continue to experience, other people are experiencing it as well. And I really am seeing now just the the power in sharing our stories. Why was it a hard no? Because I didn't think I had a story worth sharing. Oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah, I didn't think that um, what I accomplished was that big of a deal. I didn't think that the accidents were that big of a deal. I was um, kind of uh, tired and embarrassed of being the girl in the newspaper of, oh, Emily Roger gets hit by a car again. Emily Roger wins another bike race. Emily Roger gets hit by a car again. And just being so sick of that, that it's like, okay, now a film is going to come out about it. Um, And, and being, uh, I think, fear also of like, what will people think of me? It's like, you try so hard for so long to portray yourself in a certain image. And then people see the truth behind it. Wow. Yeah. But it's like, I would rather have that truth. I would rather have that judgment or whatever else comes um, based upon my truth and who I really am than somebody that I'm not. Yeah. No, I think it's profound. All right. Well, I will wrap it up and let you get back to your evening there. I know it's late there. We're getting late there. Yeah. Um, I will share all of the links. Is it okay if I share the cadence link? Is that private? (laughs) That is private yet. Yeah, there's a trailer um, for it. But yeah, the film is still doing um, the film festival round. So that needs to stay private still for now. Where but, is, um, where is it go- showing? If you don't, sorry to cut you off. Where is it showing? Yeah, so it has already showed on film festivals um, worldwide. And uh, there's a, the website is Emily Roger Cadence, and it has all of the film festivals that it is on in there. And um, potentially actually doing something with Fly Fishers International here soon as well. Um, So hopefully by the time this comes out, there'll be a date set for that. So yes, there are lots of opportunities to do it and lots of people can book private screenings and stuff like that as well. And um, once it completes all the film festival rounds, then it'll be public. Excellent. Well, I will post all of those links and let you get back to your night. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you, April. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 